Good morning. It's really a joy for me to be here, my wife and I. Um, for me, uh, it's like coming home. I mentioned this in the Sunday school hour, but uh, uh, this is the church where the Lord choose, chose to, to save me, the church where I was baptized, um, the church where I uh, first began to, to grow as a new believer uh, in Christ. So I have a special place in my heart um, for you all and for, for this congregation. Um, grateful for this opportunity to uh, proclaim the Word of God this morning. Um, it, is, it is a privilege for all of us to, to hear what the Lord will teach us. And I would just want to thank the leadership of the church for uh, inviting me to do so. You know, in our turbulent world, it seems that nothing is certain, nothing is fixed, everything changes. Every time we put down our hand to lean on something we think is secure, it moves and, and we almost fall down. Where can we find something reliable? Where is the solid rock on which we can stand? I live in the Middle East, a region not known for its stability. Last year, we experienced a major disastrous accident in the capital city, the country where I live. We've spent months at a time with no official government. The currency has lost 90% of its value. COVID-19 has taken a significant toll on public health, the medical system, and people's livelihood. We are accustomed to chaos. Everything comes and goes. Today, there's a gas shortage. Uh, tomorrow, there may be limited bread. But the Word of God tells us that it is fixed and reliable. We can trust it. Let's read and listen to the Word of the Lord together from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Christ speaking says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. These words come from Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew 5 to 7 at the beginning of Jesus' ministry after his baptism in the Jordan River and temptation in the Judean wilderness in Matthew 4. In Jesus' sermon introduction in Matthew 5, 1 to 12, we find a familiar passage that we call the Beatitudes, the blessings. In them, Jesus taught that those who disregard worldly privileges in this life will be rewarded with heavenly privileges in the next life. In the following section, verses 13 to 16, Jesus taught how citizens of the kingdom ought to live in this present world. 
Christ's disciples are intended to be agents for good in the world, salt and light, and must cause others to glorify God by their visible righteousness. In our text for today, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, we see one main truth, very simple. God's word must be accomplished. God's word must be accomplished. Each of the four verses in this text teaches us one aspect of the accomplishing of Scripture. In these four verses, we see four characters and their relationship to the Word of God. We see Christ, we see God, we see the believer, and we see the unbeliever. We see four principles, and they are Christ fulfills God's Word, God accomplishes His Word, Believers must obey God's word, and unbelievers must satisfy God's word. And we'll look at each of those points together. The first principle that Christ teaches us about the word of God is that he, Christ, fulfills God's word. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Christ talks here about not abolishing the law or the prophets, so we need to know what he means. The phrase God's word is not used in this paragraph, or the Bible, or scripture, or the usual designations that we have for this book, right? But instead he says the law and the prophets in verse 17, the law in verse 18, and commandments, referring to individual commandments of the law, in the Old Testament in verse 19. And in verse 20, Jesus does not explicitly mention the scripture, but it's connected to the rest of these verses, as we'll see. The law referred to the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. You know them, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Jesus used prophets here to refer to the rest of the Old Testament, everything that was built on the foundation of the revelation that was given to Moses and through Moses to the people from the mountain. So Jesus is talking about the word of God. At that time, of course, only the Old Testament had been written. But Jesus' apostles, remember, and their associates would also be moved by the Holy Spirit to write down God's revelation in what we call the New Testament. These 27 books would be understood as scripture. They would be recognized as scripture by the early believers. And they bear the same authority and remarkable qualities of the Old Testament. So Jesus is speaking here specifically about the Old Testament, but it would come to include all of scripture as well. Whatever he says here about the word of God applies to all of these 66 books. The word here that Christ used in And the version I'm reading from the New American Standard is abolished. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, this is interesting. This word is often used of completely destroying something, not just setting it aside a little bit, but demolishing it. In Matthew 24, verse 2, Jesus predicted that every stone of the temple would be torn down. That's the same word. Apparently, there were those who thought Jesus was attempting to completely eliminate the Old Testament scripture and just start from scratch. 
with new revelation from God. But Jesus says, do not think. He wants to correct their idea, their false idea about what he had come to do. So early on in the ministry of Jesus, people already thought, and his enemies were, of course, ready to accuse him of being opposed to the law that they treasured so much. Why might the religious leaders of that time have thought that Christ was rejecting the Old Testament law? I think there's a couple of reasons we could point to. First, Christ opposed the Pharisees and the scribes, didn't he? He's always rebuking them, always correcting them, always speaking against them. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes were thought to be the experts in teaching the law and in practicing the law. So if Jesus was opposed to them, surely he must be opposed to the law. That's what the people thought. Another reason they might have thought Christ opposed the law was because he challenged their contemporary understandings of the law. If you read the rest of Matthew chapter 5, you see how Christ repeatedly corrected common bad interpretations of the law. He said, you have heard, but I tell you. You have heard, but I tell you. He's not correcting the scripture. He's correcting their interpretation of it. The Pharisees in particular focused on external purity. Jesus said, you clean the outside of the dish, but you don't worry about what's inside. Jesus brought the true interpretation and said, no, you need to consider the heart. The people thought that Jesus was correcting the law, and he was just correcting them and their understanding of it. The last reason Jesus, the, the people may have thought that Christ was canceling the law was that he spoke with his own authority. Jesus can do that. They thought that Christ was opposed to the law because he spoke new revelation from God. Okay, so he's throwing this out, and he's bringing us something completely different. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 to 29, it says that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. In contrast to the teachers of the day, Jesus could speak and say, I am bringing you a divine interpretation and application of the word of God. Christ was not dependent on the law. He's the master of the law. He gave it. So he can speak with his own authority, not just quote what it says. But Christ wanted to assure his listeners that he was not speaking contrary to the law. In fact, he was supporting the law. He was in favor of the law. He completed the law. Without Christ, the law of God was, we might say, missing something. It needed fulfillment. Christ came to fulfill the word of God. What does this mean? The word fulfill simply means to fill up or to complete. A word is often used, as we would hear in Scripture, in the context of prophecy. A prophecy would be fulfilled when something came true. God says, I'm going to do this, and then he does it. We call it the fulfilling of prophecy. He fulfills a promise. He does what he says he would do. If a promise made is a debt unpaid, God always settles his debts. Christ completes the Old Testament. He did what his heavenly father sent him to do. In 2018, conservative political commentator Ben Shapiro, a practicing Jew, interviewed John MacArthur. In the interview, they talked about the Old Testament, and MacArthur explained the gospel as revealed in 
Isaiah chapter 53, the gospel in the Old Testament. Shapiro, who is a brilliant and respectful interviewer, nevertheless could not accept the Christian interpretation of the Old Testament. He commented, and I thought this was interesting, that Jews and Christians disagree on the ending of the book. Is that true? Do we just disagree on, you know, one little detail about the ending? No. Because of their rejection of Christ, the Jews have developed a fundamentally different understanding of the Old Testament. Without Christ, the Old Testament history, prophecy, and law are incomplete. Christ is not the dessert. It's not optional. Christ is the steak dinner. The Old Testament is the appetizer that prepares us for what is to come in Christ. All of Scripture points to him. There are several facets to Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament. First, as we mentioned, Christ fulfills many prophecies of the Old Testament. In fact, he's the center and main character of biblical prophecy. A second facet of Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament is that Christ perfectly and righteously obeyed the law. God gave them a law, didn't he? And what did he say to the people when he gave them this law? He said, you can't keep it. I'm sorry, but your hearts are too hard. You will not be able to keep this law. The law was never meant to be a means of salvation. It was meant to show the people their sin. The law didn't have any problems with it. What was the problem? The problem was the people. They were stubborn and rebellious. They didn't want to obey it, and they couldn't obey it by their nature. But one man, Christ Jesus, kept the law perfectly, not just for them, but on our behalf. He fulfilled God's standard. The third facet of Christ's fulfillment in the law is that Christ showed the true interpretation of the law. We see this in the remainder of Matthew 5, where Christ shows what the law means in relation to murder and hate, adultery and lust, etc. Christ is the perfect teacher, and through his life and teaching, he brings us the full revelation of God the Father. He shows us what God's word means. So Christ fulfills God's word. Secondly, we see the second principle of this passage is that God accomplishes his word. And this is closely related to what comes before. But verse 18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. God is not mentioned in this verse but he is clearly the acting party. We see this often in Scripture where a passive verse, a word is used, a passive verb, until all is accomplished, all will be accomplished. By whom? We have to ask by whom? God is the one who accomplishes his word. Jesus continues here in his teaching by giving us an example. He says that until heaven and earth pass away, no part of the law will pass away. In the Bible, when the term heaven and earth are used together, it means the entire creation. It's not just one little part here and one little part there. It's talking about all of it. Jesus is mentioning all of it. You know, we go back to Genesis 1-1, the very first verse in the Bible. What does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's referring to the entire universe, the physical creation that God has made. In the Bible, it was common to use two opposite points to communicate the idea of the whole of something. 
So in the Old Testament, the promised land, they would refer from Dan to Beersheba, from the northernmost city to the southernmost city, to mean all of Israel. Today we might say in the U.S., from sea to shining sea, right? We're talking about all of it. So that's what Jesus is mentioning here. The phrase heaven and earth means the entire physical creation. The word of God is more fixed and reliable than everything that we see around us. You know, Christ could have compared the word of God to a single aspect of this world, a stone or a tree or a mountain. Uh, In the country where I typically reside, there are cedar trees, well-known cedar trees. And some of these trees are thousands of years old. These are trees that you could not move if you wanted to. They are solid and fixed and firm, rooted deep into the ground. But Christ is saying, not just more fixed than a tree or a rock or a mountain, the word of God is more reliable, more solid. You can trust it more than the entire earth and creation that you see. Everything that you have experienced is more transient than the word of God. The word of God will continue even when the creation is destroyed, and it will one day be destroyed by the Lord himself. He tells us that. So what does it mean that the word of God will not pass away? I think this includes God's promises, his covenants that he has made, his prophecies. Everything God has said he will do, he will do. We could also include all the truth about God in this world that is contained in Scripture. Everything that he has told us is true about the world is true. We could also include the eternal commands and principles of God's word that are based on God's unchanging attributes. Love for God and for neighbor. Has that changed or has it stayed the same? We are called to love God and to love others. Truth justice, these things stay the same. Jesus talks about the letter or, or pin stroke passing away. In Greek, Matthew 5.18 says uh, Yoda or Yoda, not Yoda from Star Wars, uh, but uh, the, the smallest Greek uh, letter, the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. It's like a, a lowercase i, but without the dot on top, just a little bitty pin stroke. This is the smallest letter, and it's connected also to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the Yod. So Jesus is saying this tiniest thing, this smallest letter in the alphabet um, is not going to pass away. You know, I've learned from studying Arabic that uh, one dot can make a big difference in meaning. I've stuck my my foot in my mouth uh, many times uh, because I didn't catch the difference between the word with the dot and the word without the dot. Uh, a few years ago, I was writing the story of creation, and I was practicing it with my Arabic tutor. Um, but instead of saying chalak, I said halak. I should have said chalak, meaning he created. But instead, I said halak, which means he shaved. So uh, the, the, the teacher let me go through the whole story. God shaved the heavens and the earth. He shaved the birds of the, the air and the fish of the sea, even the creeping things. Uh, the whole world got a haircut. Jesus shaves.
But in all seriousness, Christ is telling us that the Word of God will not be altered or corrupted. More than that, he is assuring us that everything as God has said in his word he will do, he will do. No part of scripture will pass away. Nothing will turn out to be false. No oops moments. Oh, I thought that was going to happen because God said it, but it didn't turn out to be that way. That's never going to happen. But wait, you say, what about all those Old Testament commands that God, that God did cancel? Well, of course, God requires different things of different people in different ages. For example, we no longer sacrifice animals. I'm kind of glad about that. Um, it's, it's a bloody process, as it's described in Scripture. But this command was fulfilled in Jesus. It didn't become obsolete or broken. This was God's design from the beginning that Christ would fulfill the sacrificial system. You know, from time to time, governments make amendments to their constitutions because they got something wrong or something needs to be changed or improved. But God's word needs no amendments. It's perfect and unchanging. God's word reflects God himself. When we look at the word of God, all of the amazing attributes that we see in them are a reflection of who God is. God's word is true because God is true. God's word is a perfect reflection of his character and attributes, just like a mirror reflects your face. We see who God is in his word because he has revealed himself to us. You know, it's easy to affirm the reliability of God's word in the abstract. The test comes when we are faced with situations where it seems God and his word have failed us. Has it ever seemed that way to you? That God's word let you down? That God's promises were not going to come true as you thought? How do we respond to trials, these difficulties that we face in our lives where we are squeezed and and pressed and we think that we are abandoned and alone? Do we doubt God's character and promises during those times? What about in ministry? It's easy to affirm the effectiveness of God's word when ministry is successful. People are coming to faith and, and growing in Christ. But is our confidence in God's word only present when God's word is obviously prospering? I have to confess that my faith in the efficacy of God's word has often been tested. While the training ministry that we do in the Middle East has been blossoming, and we're very grateful for that, uh, my ministry in the local church has been at times much less visibly successful. I lead the young adults ministry, what we call the Shabibi group. And there have been plenty of weeks when I thought, I'm going to be the only one in that building. Have you ever done that? You're going to do a ministry, you think nobody's going to notice, nobody's going to be there, no one's going to show up to hear or listen or engage, um, plan this event, and, and it's not going to go anywhere. I've had those thoughts. In such circumstances, we must deepen our faith in the Lord and his word and not trust just what's in front of our eyes. God accomplishes his word. But what about us? Do we accomplish God's word? Can we, should we, must we enact God's word in our lives and in uh, the world around us? As God's creatures, we are designed to accomplish the will of God on earth. So the third principle we learn from this passage about the word of God is that believers must obey God's word. Christ says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so 
shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus teaches us who is the greatest and who is the least in the kingdom. They're in the kingdom, but there's greater and lesser. As believers, we should want to know the answer to this question. If you're engaged in, in a game or a sport or any kind of competition, what do you want to know? You want to know what are the rules and how do I win? How do I succeed in this task? So we should want to know how does Christ design, define success? How does he define those who have uh, achieved greatness, who are honored by the Lord for their service? And it all comes down to one thing. What is your view of Scripture? God will honor those who honor his word. Jesus uses the word annul here in the New American Standard. Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments. Um, it's related but different from the word abolish that we saw in verse 17. The word annul uh, is most often used of untying or loosening uh, the strap of one's sandals. So the, the English Standard Version, the ESV, says whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. That's a pretty helpful uh, literal uh, interpretation of this word. And basically what Jesus is talking about here is just breaking or failing to obey the law, being negligent of a command of Scripture and teaching others to do this, being loose with God's word and what he has commanded us to do, saying, oh, it's okay, you don't have to follow all of that. You don't have to love your neighbor as yourself. You don't have to uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No, you can just do as you please. Remember, we're talking about believers here, those who will enter the kingdom of God. So let's ask a few questions here. Can someone completely reject God's word and enter Christ's kingdom? And to that I would say no. You cannot reject Christ and his word and expect to be entering into his kingdom. We have to submit to him, repent of our sins, and express faith in our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. But can someone break some commands of the law and enter Christ's kingdom? Yes, I hope so, because we have all broken God's law. If the standard was perfection on our part, none of us would enter. Christ has met that standard. So we have all broken God's law, and yet we can still enter Christ's kingdom. Even after believing in Christ, we continue to break God's law. But Christ perfectly obeyed the law, and he commands us to obey the law, not to earn our salvation, but in order to please our God, to express our gratitude to him for what he has done for us in Christ. We need to remember that God hates sin. God hates sin so much that he sent Christ to die on that cross for our sin so that we could be saved and so that eventually Christ could eradicate sin from his creation to create a new heavens, a new earth, a kingdom that will never pass away where righteousness dwells. That is his goal, to eliminate and eradicate sin. So that should motivate us in our lives today to sin less and less and pursue righteousness more and more because that is God's will for us. That's why it says the one who breaks God's law and teaches others to do the same 
will be called least in the kingdom. He will enter the kingdom, but he will lose some reward from his heavenly father. You know, there are those who say, oh, there's not going to be any difference in the kingdom. Everybody just kind of gets the, the same thing uh, when we get to Christ's kingdom. Now, it is true that when we get to uh, be with our Lord, the greatest joy is going to be in his presence. And we all get that. But Christ has promised us over and over in Scripture that there are rewards for obedience. This is an act of grace on God's part because we're not earning those of our own. Christ is giving us the ability to serve him, and then he's rewarding us for the works that we've done only by his grace. So certainly no one is going to be deprived in the kingdom of Christ. No one's going to be sad or mistreated. Far be it. But there is obviously greater reward and blessing for those who have demonstrated greater obedience and faithfulness on the earth. And promised rewards should be motivation to obedience. Why does Christ tell us that there's reward, there's treasure in heaven? Because he wants us to live like that. Because he wants us to see with eyes of faith into the future and say, life may be difficult now, but if I serve the Lord, I know that he has only good waiting for me in the future. We shouldn't reject this and say, oh God, I don't want any reward from you. Is it honoring for a, for a child to his parent? to say, oh, I don't want any gift from you. Please, you know, take these birthday gifts and return them to the store. Or does the child honor his parents by saying, thank you, you are good parents, you are good to me. That's how we should be to the Lord, receiving what he has given us with gratitude and thanks, anticipating those rewards that he has promised us. It's interesting that Christ mentions that this one here will teach others to do the same. James 3, 1 says, let not many of you become, what, teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. To stand in, in a pulpit such as this and proclaim God's word is a big responsibility, one that I don't take lightly. To stand here and say, God says you must do this, or God says you must do, not do that, that's a frightening responsibility. Those who teach must be careful to only say what God has said. How terrible is it when teachers lead people astray? We must be careful every time we open our mouths and say, thus says the Lord, whether we're standing in the pulpit or we're in the church lobby or we're sitting around the dinner table at home. Anytime we dare to speak for the Lord by saying this is what God's word says and what it means, we must be careful. How do we lead others astray? What are we in danger of doing here? There's a few examples. Of course, we can lead others astray by our words. We might convince others that we don't have to strive for holiness because we're, we're, we're saved by grace. Oh, it's okay. God's going to forgive you. You can just live however you want. Or the other way, like the Pharisees, we might convince others to obey our own invented extra-biblical commands. Say, oh, oh, I, it doesn't say in the scripture, but you need to do this and this and this. This is how you're to raise your children. This is, and we add to the scripture. We can lead people astray in that way as well. What's the problem with this? For one thing, when we create our own commandments to follow, we tend to neglect the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You know, we can also lead others astray by our poor example. People are always watching us. We're watching other people, and they're watching us. 
and they're seeing how we live, and they know we're believers because we've told them, yeah, I follow Christ. They may be other believers. They may be unbelievers. They're going to look at our lives and say, for example, oh, she gets angry at her children all the time. I guess that's normal. I'll do that too. No, we need to be careful how we live. God is displeased when we neglect his commandments, but the reverse is also true. When we do what God has commanded us to do and we encourage others also to do it, God is pleased. He is satisfied. He is honored. Those who honor God's word and obey it are considered the greatest in the kingdom. The greatest in the kingdom is not the pastor of the biggest church or the person who, who memorized the most Bible verses or the one who knows the most theology. The greatest in the kingdom is the person who listens to God and does what he says. That's the greatest in the kingdom according to Christ. Obedience is not a popular concept these days, especially in our American society. The, the the, the structures of authority are being systematically broken down. At least that's the attempt. Parents, police, government. The attempt to abolish these things so that we can live however we want. But when we reject a legitimate human authority, we're really rejecting God. And that is the deeper issue. We teach our children to obey because it's right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. My wife often quotes that scripture to our little children. But also because we want them to respond properly to God's authority when they grow up. It's not about us and just listen to us and do whatever we say. We're training them to respond well to authority so they can do that to the Lord and to other legitimate human authorities that God has established. Years ago, Kathleen and I were foster parents during a time when we lived in Southern California. We had a young boy who lived with us for, for six months, a toddler. His name was Nathan. And we taught him a new word. I don't think he had ever heard it before. And that was the word obey. And my wife taught it to him very well. And, and we got, when he got in trouble, he would just, he would repeat the word over and over and over, obey, 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 obey. So I told my wife, I don't know if we broke him or we fixed him, but we definitely had an impact in this child's life. He learned a new word, a new concept that's important for young people and all of us to know that there are authorities and God is the ultimate authority who must be obeyed. He has given us his word to follow and that is our responsibility. You know, we need to remember that we are slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, 17 to 18 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient, there's that word again, from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committing. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We do not belong to ourselves. We are not free to live however we please. We are free to live according to God's pleasure. Do we have freedom in Christ? Yes and amen freedom to obey him and love him and serve him to the utmost. We must, as Romans says, present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. So believers must obey God's word. But what about those who don't know Christ? Do they have any responsibility or, or are they off the hook? What should be the response of an unbeliever to God's 
written revelation. We learn the last principle from our text this morning, that unbelievers must satisfy God's word. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Believers are responsible to obey the word of God, but here we're talking about unbelievers. Verse 20 is fascinating, um, and it's kind of a riddle. We need to, to unpack it here. What is he talking about unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees? You know, in verse 19, Jesus talks about those who enter the kingdom of God, from the greatest to the least. But these are people that are in the kingdom. But here in verse 20, these are frightening words. Jesus says that if a person's righteousness did not surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he will not enter the kingdom at all. So we need to take heed. These are crucial words. What about the scribes and Pharisees? We've mentioned them already. To understand what Christ is saying, we need to understand how the, view, the Jews viewed these two groups at that time. The scribes and Pharisees were highly respected. Now, we reread the New Testament, and we see them as the bad guys, right? Because Jesus is always uh, rebuking them. You read Matthew chapter 23. It's a whole chapter of rebuke against the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you. It's a scathing rebuke for almost 40 verses. But the Jews at that time, they did not view these groups as bad. They thought that the scribes and Pharisees were the most righteous people. They thought that they would enter the kingdom first. So, yeah, we need to be like them. The Pharisees appeared to have a great relationship with the law. They particularly prided themselves on their careful keeping of the Mosaic law. They invented many more laws to help them obey the laws that God had given. For example, they knew exactly how many steps a person could take on the Sabbath, not too many, so that they wouldn't break the, the Sabbath observance. These are the kinds of things that they established in their system. They gave tithes from their spices, the, 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 the mint and, and the cumin and the dill. They would take 10% of each of those and give them as offerings. They were fastidious in every way. If entering the kingdom of heaven meant being more particular than the scribes and Pharisees, how could anyone enter the kingdom of heaven? You can't out-Pharisee the Pharisees. Just ask Martin Luther, the great reformer. Luther said, I was a good monk, and I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me well, who knew me, will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. You can't compete with that. Don't try. You will find that you have become like one who is unclean, and all your righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And you wither like a leaf, and your iniquities, like the wind, take you away. Instead, Jesus wants you to understand that you need a different kind of righteousness. That is the key here. Jesus Christ is the only human to ever keep the law of God completely. He possesses perfect righteousness, and he offers it 
freely to you. You must come to him in humility and repentance, asking for his forgiveness and his free gift of salvation. You will be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You will be justified in the sight of God, the holy judge. But you must receive this gift. You must take it. You must accept the offer. Are you still holding on to, can I say it this way, your pitiful attempts to keep God's law and please him on your own? Do you think God will save you simply because you attended church or read your Bible or your parents are believers? You cannot earn your salvation. Only Christ can give it to you. But once his spirit lives inside of you, you will want nothing more than to know and keep his word. You will treasure every word, every letter, every dot on the page. And you will have confidence that God will accomplish all of his word. You'll trust him. Christ did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. Every word of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, will be accomplished. Our response should be to value and obey the word of God. But we cannot do this unless we have first received the righteousness of Christ, which surpasses all human works and attempts to please God by keeping the law. I pray that that would be true for each one of us this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our Master, our King. He is the one who has bought us with his blood, made a way for us to enter his kingdom, to be saved, to be righteous, so that we can be in your presence for eternity. I pray if there's anyone in this room who has not received the good news, whose hearts have not been transformed, that you would do that work in them today. Lord, we who know you and trust you, may we trust you more and live for you this week. And it's in the name of our sovereign Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.